tell you what Rumor and Memes is about, okay? It's about a couple of guys who watch a lot of films. I'm talking morning, noon, night after night. Film, 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 film. Films that other professionals have described as masterpieces. Welcome to episode 37 of Ribbon of Memes. I am Mr. Purple, otherwise known as Nick, and I am joined as ever by Mr. Red. I don't know his first name, I'm afraid. Mr. Puce. Mr. Puce, very good. Most people don't know that Puce is the colour of dried blood. <laughs> I'm sure we'll find out in this episode, which is our... Well, it's a, a throwback to 1967 with a John Borman's... Um, feature, feature directorial debut. A feature, double feature, uh, in person, Ribbon of Memes, second Back episode to. in person. Um, and we are discussing Point Blank 1967, John Borman, and the influenced by it 1992 Reservoir Dogs by Quentin Tarantino. And I've got to say, first of all, it didn't seem like much of an influence, but we'll come back to that. So We will. Point blank, it's, I suppose you call it a crime thriller. Um, Would you call it a neo-noir? In some ways, yeah. It yeah. certainly has noirish elements to it. So this is um, John Borman directing Lee Marvin. Uh, his first feature direction, I believe. He done, done Catches If You Can, which was... Uh, basically a hard day's night for the Dave Clark Five. <laughs> That's right, yes, yeah. But this was his first term. And he had a lot of director, directorial freedom because Lee Marvin, who had an immense amount of power in Hollywood at this point, um, said, do you give me directorial, do you give me freedom uh, to the studio? Who said yes, and he said, right, well, I'll give it to John Borman. So mm-hmm. basically this is the film John Borman wanted to make, and it's... Um, it starts with Lee Marvin getting shot in a cell in Alcatraz and then uh, uh, follows his uh, his revenge um, from then. Or does it? Was he? Did he ever get out of the cell? These are the mysteries we uh, will all I, I discuss. Don't, I don't think that's, like. that's a seriously raised question, but it, it's definitely a very... I mean, a, crime films in particular tended to be fairly formulaic. Yes. And they always have been. It, it's a crime film, you know, the sort of thing that's going to be happening in it. And it, it's deliberately avoided. It's jumping around in time and place. There's, you know, he's flashing back to the time he actually got shot. Or he's flashing back to when he was mates with this guy who's just shot him. Yes. I mean, the opening is very disjointed and confusing. Not, um, perhaps less so to us more... Uh, literate in these sorts of things, thanks to Tarantino, amongst others, who has certainly enjoyed the, the, the bouncing narrative. Um, but actually, it was a bit less so than I was expecting. It's from the opening, which is very disjointed and confusing, and kind of understandably so. The rest well, also of Also, a lot of unusual camera angles, you know, here's the shot up through the grating, that kind of thing. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, well, I want to talk about that a bit, but I suppose as far as the narrative goes, it's actually, once that opening is done with, pretty straight, narr- linear narrative, um, mm. which is not quite what I was expecting, given its alleged influence, uh, well, no, actual admitted evidence on Tarantino's oeuvre. Um, it, it then, I mean, it, it, it doesn't completely let it go, because there are often brief second long flashbacks of things that have happened before or he confuses characters 
in similar situations or different situations or mixes the characters up, but they're really just uh, almost subliminal or very short flashes of that rather than changes in the narrative. Yeah, I, I would call it stylized. I mean, things like um, jump when the, when Walker and Yost, let's call him Yost, off us talking on the boat, yes. jump, jumping around in scene, and you know, this isn't just two guys having a conversation. They're in, they're in a crowd. People are pushing past them. That kind of thing. Uh, yeah. There are long dialogue-free sections. Yes, there uh, are. And indeed, there's, monologue, but we'll come back to that. There's an awful lot of heavy footsteps in this, but it seemed to me... They... Uh, the, the fight behind the screen in the jazz club, so you, you've got the back of the stuff they're showing to the people in the club and these guys fighting. Well, it, I mean... only it, by that, that kind of thing. I was trying to work out where I'd seen similar cinematography, and I finally worked out it was Excalibur, hmm. which is John Borman's later, probably 10, 20 years later, but I can't remember when Excalibur was. But it's... Um, frankly, um, it worked well for me in X. And, and um, I'm going to use the word surreal. Uh, it's it's surrealistic in the in the sense that it's yeah we have these odd mm. camera angles. People are very muted and don't react perhaps as emotionally as well. Certainly, the main character Lee Marvin has one expression through the whole <laughs> film. Um, Got to say, bit, bit having a character who is basically stony faced can't help but make the acting job easier. <laughs> exactly, yeah, and he's, yeah, it's, it's. I, I, I was particularly um, struck by this during uh, Lynn, the, the ex-wife who, yes. who betrayed him. This, that was that scene was originally written as effectively him interrogating her. Yes, uh, but Marvin just refused to do the lines, and so they said, "Well, okay, you know." Uh, you got to do it instead. I uh, can't remember who the actor was, but anyway, they they just said to her, "Okay, we're going to rewrite this, and you have to do the whole thing." So you're you're breaking down in the face of his stoicism. Yeah, is, is, yeah. Um, but he might as well be a waxwork in that scene, you know. There, there are an awful lot of dialogue scenes um, where the characters are both looking in the same direction, not facing each other, barely reacting to each other's dialogue. Um, I. It's an interesting stylistic choice, and it really is stylistic, but it's surrealistic. And unfortunately for me, I dislike surrealism in film. It just usually works, doesn't work. To me, me, surrealism tends to mean an aspect of the fiction of the narrative, as well as perhaps the, the style. I mean, I would expect to have a bit more doubt about what's really happening. And I, well, I, I didn't feel that at all in this. Well, no, I, I think... I, I think the film was trying to play that up a bit, perhaps, and particularly with the opening and his confusion. I suppose for me it's a feeling that David Lynch, David Lynch, David Lynch <laughs> is phenomenally good at. And I, 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 of all the surrealistic kind of filmic styles, I do like David Lynch, but, uh, I struggle with surrealism in general. And here it's more of a, a feeling of, uh, unreality and unsettling, uh, for me at least, this is what I associate surrealism with, I, I do genuinely find it unsettling, mm. which may be what the filmmaker's going for, um, but I find it un, not unpleasant, just cold in a way that switches me off and made this, which is a amongst our shorter, I mean both films together barely hit over three hours, we've had longer, longer <laughs> single features rather than both yeah. of these together, but this one Point Blank felt like a long watch to me. I didn't... There wasn't much of a character to empathise with. Also, mm, 
there, there is there is stuff happening, but it never feels urgent to me, and that's the thing that makes a film seem to pass faster. That that sense yeah. of we've got to get this done now. Yes, there's long dialogue for each section, and again, that's not, you don't always need dialogue to move the plot forward, but they're mainly uh, there's long long just straight. Uh, like there's the seconds of uh long seconds of Lee Marvin's reaction when something happens, but as his reaction is always the same for everything else that's happening, it doesn't feel like that's particularly. Yeah, he, he was a big star at the time, so I think there was a certain amount of money in simply putting him on the screen. I mean, and, and letting letting him do the thing he did. I'm not in any. I don't think he's a bad acting. Well, I well, he, there are certain sorts of acting that he just doesn't do here. I mean, mm. he, he, whether that is because he is portraying an unemotional character or because he just didn't like doing that sort of thing or he couldn't do that sort of thing, I don't know. <laughs> he I mean, certainly had a sense of humour. Exactly. We know Lee Marvin was um, a good actor, uh, perhaps not a great actor, but a very good actor, and had a lot of screen charisma when. He needed it. I think and the, the main thing, other thing I've seen him in, and I, I suspect you have too, is um, Fistful of Dollars, Few Dollars More, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, whichever of those he's in. I can't remember which uh, one's now. It's, um, uh, I, I forget. It's certainly not The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, but it may be the other. It's, it's either one or two of the others. Yes. Yeah. Um, but in that, he had, he's definitely a you know, second fiddle. He's got Clint Eastwood to play against. And I, th- I think he works better when he's, uh, at least in the small exposure I've had to him, he works better when he's playing against somebody. Yes, I mean, my main exposure to him would probably be The Dirty Dozen. Um, there he gets a bit more of a sense of humour and a bit more of emotion. And it's a big ensemble cast and he's not carrying the whole film. And while he is a stoic screen present, and I'm not in any way casting aspersions about his real life, <laughs> bravery, um, because he, he was a genuine uh, war hero who <laughs> didn't mm-hmm. charge a machine gun nest, I think. Um, but he, uh, as a, a man to carry me through the film, it, he, he didn't do it for me. I'm sure it was a, a conscious choice to be that flat, dead, mm. unresponsive character. But it, but it, ma- it makes it harder to engage with the film. Yes, and the film is also one of my least favourite sort of plots, which is basically a revenge plot. Um, but even- well, that's the thing. I mean, what, what I expect from a revenge plot, and maybe it's unreasonable of me to expect this in a film from the 60s, is, you know, ultimately you're discovering the revenge wasn't worth it because you don't get what you actually wanted. Exactly. Um, but and he- you know, it's, it's arguable, is he going to walk away from the money at the end? Is he not? Well, we don't know. But the money's going to be left there for him, so probably he isn't. Probably, but also <laughs> you kind of get the impression, although it's a revenge film, he doesn't seem to care all that much. I mean, he, he's always saying, "I want my money, I want my money," um, but you get you kind of know it's not really about that. Do we actually believe he'd stop if somebody paid him the money? Exactly. Yes, exactly. But then, is he angry enough to just go? He doesn't show enough emotion to know quite because once. He's dealt with both the people who actually betrayed him, which is about halfway through the film. Mm. He then just carries on. Well, one of them dealt with herself, but well, exactly. <laughs> but once they are done, and, and when I, the... I, I was just waiting for her to say in that scene, "Will you, damn it, answer me?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I would like in this film: someone to react in a way. And I find I forget which other film we've had this in. It was a bit of Badlands, actually. Um, but Badlands film, mm. uh, we, it's funny we've referenced Badlands an awful lot, but it, it's one of those films, uh, exactly of this era, where everyone is flat and unresponsive and all the, except 
the women who are shrieking harrigans and lunatics or uh, absolute bags of emotion to the point of hysteria often. Mm. Uh, it, this, this did remind me quite a bit of the original Thomas Crown Affair, which I think is the year after this, I think it's 68, um, where similarly you, you've got a fairly flat leading man, right. but then of course you've got the romance with Vicky, the insurance investigator. That's Steve McQueen, is it? Uh, yes, yeah. and uh, we, we're going to sound less clever than usual because we don't have our laptops in front of us. We'll remember at 3am and splice it back in. Um, Bonnie and Clyde, actress. Uh, Faye anyway. Yes. Who, okay, she doesn't do a great job of looking intelligent, even over a chess set, but she does do a fairly decent acting job elsewhere. Anyway. Uh, yes, we've, we've sang Fade and praises before. Th- that is not one of her better films. Oh, I think. Right, fair enough. Um, yeah. but that, that, that gets away. Even that, I, it's one of the few cases where I prefer the remake because in the, the basic idea is this guy is doing crime because he is bored. Yes. And in the remake, at least he seems to be getting some fun out of it. <laughs> well, because in the original he really isn't. Well, this for me, this was an unfortunate combination of that sort of thing. That, I mean, this is the same year as Bonnie and Clyde. Am I mm, right saying? Some, but, yeah. uh, and it's, um, I mean, Bonnie and Clyde actually they did seem, did seem to be having some fun as well. But it's that acting style is of the sixties um, mm. or the late sixties, early seventies, the, the American New Wave, and it's combined with this. To me, what I would call surrealism. I mean, this is the director who gave us Zardos, so it was very strange. I mean, he's got high points and low points. He, he, he'd made Deliverance and Excalibur, both of which I, I, I don't enjoy Deliverance much, but I would call them both pretty darn good films. I, I absolutely agree. But yes. he also made Zardos and he made Exorcist to the Heretic. <laughs> which so. I believe Pauline Kael said about, um, if you watch it with the sound off, you might be fooled into thinking it was a masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, I mean, I'm not arguing. It's visually distinct and interests. Well, is it interesting? I've got to say, where, at the point where the guy goes off the balcony. Yes. I was really expecting the sheets to blow away on the wind in a symbolic manner. Yeah. I was really surprised yeah. Bullman missed that trick. Yeah. It's a, yes. Exactly. <laughs> it's um. Well. On the other hand, there are bits that I mean, Carter, the the one of the crime bosses, setting yes. up his underling. The car salesman with the with the parcel of fake money for the drop is just beautifully done. Yeah, of course you're going to do this for me. Yes, it's going to be fine. And I am in fact planning to have you murdered. Yes, uh, and that that was that was just a lovely thing. And the, the it way the, way, done, the yes. way it went wrong seemed at least plausible for people who are, let's face it, not professionals at this. Uh, <laughs> yes, but, and those LA River culverts. Why do they not feature in more films? I don't know. Well, we had it in there. Terminator Two. Yeah, didn't we? Uh, also the core at the beginning. Oh, yeah. And yeah. it's not a great film, but it's a fun film. Yes. And, and that's an atmospheric sequence. Um, Borman was famously fond of stark sets for this. Um, there's there's an airport corridor, uh, our hero's walking down the beginning, and it had vases of flowers in it, and apparently he said, no, no, I, I, I want those gone. I want this much, much Very cleaner, cleaner and splatter. Well, that, that kind of stylistic, I think... That applies to much of the whole film, not just visually, but I think that Spartanness is the acting, it's like the plot. If there's a detail there, he probably wants it to be there, rather than it's just, it was there on the set. Yes, yeah, and and what you're left with is, um, 
um, I, I, I'm not in love with it, let's put it that way. I, I wouldn't be keen if I was made to watch it again. I, I just, it didn't, didn't land for me. I, I did enjoy it, but in, in the way that I enjoyed the original Thomas Crown, I, I tried to put myself into the mindset of this is the sort of film that people were watching at the time. Yeah. And then this is how it differs from that, this is how it's surprising and so on, rather than this is a completely alien vocabulary to me, which is what it would be cold. Yes, I, and I suppose true to form of these new wave films or this era, it doesn't end quite as you would expect it to. And maybe we've been spoiled because we've just gone through the 80s and 90s, and the 90s are basically films that are exactly as you would expect it well, to be. Well, I, I think we've mentioned briefly in, in the context of Die Hard, the, was it movie score? Uh, but the, effectively, the, the questionnaire done after people had seen a film of yes. w- would you see it? Would you see this film? Would you see a film because of this leading man and so on? And I think it got a lot more algorithmic. Yes, and, and so particularly once the focus group becomes popular, yeah, you, they would make two or three versions of a film. You know, happy ending, sad ending, inconclusive ending, and then poll the audience. And generally, the audience seeing the happy ending were, were, the ha- were the most enthusiastic about the film, and so that was the version that got released. That kind of thing and became that, much more common in the 80s and 90s. Well, it became much more common because of the eventual flops and sort of collapse of the new wave when they realised actually we have to make money. Once mm. these films were making money, while these films were making money, studios were perfectly happy for this yeah. sort of stuff. Uh, and I suppose I can't have it both ways, but I, yes. th- I think this was a moderate success. I mean, it's not one of the really big earners, but it, it, it you know, it, it made a decent profit. Yes, and it, it's hard to, well, maybe it would be a success nowadays. But, um, films have become much more formulaic. But in a way, you could argue this is formulaic of the, of the late, in that it has the kind of flat ending, the, the hero, uh, anti-hero, I guess it's fair to call him in this one, doesn't really get what he wants, but doesn't also seem to care that he doesn't get what he wants. He, get, he, get, he, he gets what he thought he wanted. Yeah. And then perhaps I, I, you know, either he he's feeling fat and he doesn't really care, and so he leaves it, or he's feeling he wants these guys to walk away rather than shooting him before he takes it. Well, we don't know. Yeah, you're not sure. <laughs> Whereas, as you say, in a revenge film, you're almost expecting him to have the money and feel hollow, or consciously reject the money. But all of that happens off screen. Whatever, yeah. ha- whatever he decides to do, it happens off screen because he just sort of walks off. Well, he doesn't even walk off. He backs into the shadows. And then the film ends, really. You yeah. don't know quite. Um, yeah, and maybe that was a bold and interesting choice, but it feels to me like all the other films of the late 60s and early 70s <laughs> ended, so it doesn't feel that bold or interesting to me. Well, um, what, what's that standard saying? That the, the way to make money in Hollywood is to be the second person to make a film with an original idea. Yes, exactly, yeah. And that's... Um, uh, it's, I mean, it's just, I've not seen many films quite like it, but the films I have seen like it have been John Borman films, so he's certainly, <laughs> a, certainly a, an auteur in that respect. I just, I've mentioned Excalibur, and that's, that surrealism really does work for me there, because it's all about myth, and hmm. um, the dark ages, or whatever you want to call it, when it sets, because it's a bit obscure. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not a historical period. Exactly, it's, it's a myth story, and and there and it, and it works. I agree. Uh, there's that slightly, um, I, I don't want to say fuzzy edge because that makes it sound the cinematographer was rubbish, but that that, that <laughs> yes. slight mentally out of focus, dreamlike almost yes. quality yes. to it, um, which is I feel which Rick Summerbear, yes, is great for this is it, where it's supposed to be a stark, realistic story of revenge and murder and stuff. Yeah, it's an odd choice, and I can see why it's memorable because of that, but it doesn't work for me. Um, mm-hmm. 
I do have a couple of minor things. Uh, first of all, this was the first film to be actually shot on Alcatraz after it had closed as a prison. Oh, okay. Well, which, which is why they just make a such few a, weeks after it shot. I, I believe, believe so. Yeah. yeah. Which is why they make such a thing of it. And to us now, having seen a lot of films shot there or set there, not so much. But you know that that was a consideration at the time. Yes, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Uh, we haven't had for a while Rogers Aviation Corner, because we haven't had a lot of films with aircraft in. <laughs> okay. But, uh, that, that helicopter, it did, did rather strike me, because it has such a weird engine sound. I mean, it sounds sounds like a modern um, little drone to me. It does. Uh, when they first hear it, because he, he he, they hear it in the film, and you hear the noise, and yeah, mm. it doesn't sound like a filmic helicopter to me. So that that's a Hughes 269. It is a real thing. It, it, it got to be the later model because they got three people in it and only the later model had three seats. That's right, okay. Uh, but it, it was one of the last of the piston-powered helicopters because particularly in the 60s, most of the manufacturers were going over to turbine engines because you just get so much more power right. in, the, in the same space and weight. Uh, but, you know, it was a light utility helicopter for this sort of thing, I guess. I'll take your word for it, but yes, it was. It was again. Distinct. It just leapt out at me as, yeah, this is a bit weird. Uh, the other, the other, the corner we haven't had back for a while that we don't talk about, Roger's murder corner. <laughs> <laughs> Not since Blood Simple, I don't. Know, yeah, if you're going to murder your buddy, is it? Does it really cost you so much to go back and? Put one more shot in to make sure. <laughs> and yes, all right, we wouldn't have a story. But the 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 real incident of that for me was okay. Yeah, you have gone to visit your ex-wife and you have roughed her up a bit, and that's probably going to leave some trace. If she then kills herself, you don't go around interfering with the body. They have fingerprints in 1967, and perimortem bruising is going to make that pathologist say, "Ooh, hang on a minute, maybe yes. this wasn't just an overdose after all." <laughs> Uh, agreed, agreed, and, um, uh, well, I suppose it adds to the surrealism, because I really, when he gets shot in the cell, to me, I'm like, well, there's no coming back from this, clearly gonna shoot him again, cause he wouldn't, but he didn't, um, he just left him kill out. Uh, that's that, that could be argued as he's feeling, he's, he's obviously in a high emotional state, he's betraying this guy who used to be his best friend, for this woman. Yeah. Um, Nobody's feeling good about this. <laughs> no, it's, it's not a good day for anyone. Um, the, so, so yeah, it's, screwing up is fair. Well, it may lead to this theory that um, Walker is dead and it's his is is post afterlife dream. I think I, I don't think this. I don't think the film supports that. I don't think so. Other than I think where it comes from is this general unsettling theme and slight surreal, surreal uh, dreamlike quality. Because hmm. uh, I can't say surreal, surreal. I won't attempt it again. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it probably comes from the fact something feels off, and that might be where hmm. it comes from. Um, Okay. But, yeah, I mean, I, I liked it, I think, more than you did. Yes, but I think that's fair to say. It, it's not going to be a favourite film. No, no. Well, let's move on to a film which is probably going to be the opposite way round. Um, which 25 be, years later. 25 years later, we have the first feature by a young Mr Quentin Tarantino. Um... Uh, the first film by him I have seen, in fact. Yes, you're, you broke your Tarantino cherry, and it is, um... It's a... Uh, I mean, it's hard to give it a linear narrative. It's not as... Um, it, it's pretty close to it. It's actually... What it is is a, a, a almost real-time story of the post uh, right after a heist with flashbacks. Which, which explained why a particular thing happened the way it did, largely. Yes. And the, really, the, the only bit that's seriously jiggered out of order from that is the hijacking of the car that gets uh, orange shot. Yes. Yes, that's right. And that's uh, that's... 
shaved until almost the last 10 or 20 minutes. I can't quite remember. Towards the end anyway, yeah. Now, this, uh, so for me, um, I, I, I just feel immediately much more at home with it. Um, it, it's, it, it's not, it's not quite realistic so much as hyper realistic. It, it's got, it has the banter of Diner. Um, to me, the banter works better. <laughs> that, that, that Diner scene really put me off for, for a couple of reasons. Yes. Um, was it Tarantino's acting? No, not really. Okay. Um, I mean, starting off, this is that sort of utterly pointless conversation about, you know, the, 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 the meaning of these pop culture things. Yes. That I have never liked, and it feels that this is what this is what these people have instead of a life of the mind. These are really dull people who don't have things they actually think about. Yes, and yet we are supposed to think that these are the cool guys. I won't say the good guys; that's fair enough. But they, they yeah. are the cool guys. They are the guys are going to be following and caring about, and I find it difficult to care about them. Well, I suppose it was one of the first incidents of pop culture eating itself. You know, once pop culture starts to reference itself in itself. Um, but it hadn't really happened before that very much. Yeah. Um, well, the the other thing is uh, another thing uh, that that particular style of pub conversation about that person who was in that film. Yeah. That that IMDb and smartphones destroyed forever, and I was glad to see it go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it, I again, it doesn't quite feel realistic. And actually, in respect with Ribbon and Beans, I think the kind of banter in Goodfellas. Uh, is of a higher quality than this. Um, and, yeah. and feels better and more, well, not better, it feels more realistic, but it, it, this still has that kind of musical quality to it in a way. There's an almost poetry. Yeah, it doesn't work so well, but possibly also because this is the first time we meet these guys. I mean, by the time yeah. we see them in Goodfellas, we know who's who and roughly yeah. what they're capable of. I, I would agree, probably the opening scene, uh, well, I like it, I can see why it were great. Um, yeah, and that, that did put me in the wrong mood to appreciate the rest of the film, and looking back on it now at, at a slightly greater distance, I, I can appreciate, I think I can appreciate it better. Yes, but seeing okay. it immediately after that opening got, got me, rubbed me the wrong way. I would just like to say, in many US states, including California, people in, in jobs that are expected to get tips do have a special exemption from minimum wage laws. They can actually be paid less. Oh. Because they because it is assumed they will get tips. Well, I I think you're arguing with everyone against Mr. Pink there. To, <laughs> to be fair, um, I don't think Mr. That, Pink that, is supposed yeah. to be in the moral right. Yeah, the thing the thing is, no, none of them says that. Presumably, they don't know it either. It, I don't. Maybe it's not that commonly known unless you've actually worked as waitstaff or you know, pub waiter or whatever. It would have been a good counter to. Yeah, it would have been a good addition. But anyway. Um, yeah. I, for me, this, you know, the, right after the diner scene, we're plunged in media res to the immediate aftermath of the heist. We have, and, and again, like Goodfellas, we never see the actual robbery. Except, yeah, and that's, um, and that is uh, obviously deliberate. I, I think partially it was budgetary to some extent, but mm. it's obviously You could a lot more extras. Because it's not about the heist, it's about what happens after, and it's about the relationship. How do they does. react once it's gone bad? Yes, exactly, because it's not as interesting. To, and it's nice, you're never left like feeling, well, what have you, I don't know, you're with, because it is very dynamic, this film is almost the same length as, um, as Point Blank. To me, it this certainly just, feels if it goes faster, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. it just races by, because I'm, straight away we have characters, um, very different character. I mean, I'm not, again, they're not deep or, or necessarily mm. three-dimensional characters. But, you know, a lot of the films we think, yeah, a lot of films, 
I don't necessarily need that sometimes. You need some well-drawn <laughs> characters where you understand who and what they're about and how they bounce off each other. Because um, you only have a very short time to spend with these people. I think it would be fair to say that central relationship between White and Orange, I mean, yeah. Cartel and Roth sell it gorgeously. Yeah. And that, that, I think, I don't think anybody would argue, is really what the film is about more yes. than anything else. Well, yeah, spoiler, I mean, right at the end, um, in fact, throughout the whole film... There's a really paternalistic, you know, that, you know, Mr. White, for whatever reason, we don't know his past really deliberately, but he clearly thinks of Orange as a son and comes to think of him in that way. And even right. Or that at, sort of mental student or however that it sort, works. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and right at the end. I, so the reason Reservoir Dogs works for me is, yes, is basically that relationship that, and the right at the end when he's realized Orange that White is wrong and he has killed everyone, more or less. He's ruined everything. Um, the howl, he can't even talk, just the kind of howling sob that he gives. And the way he cradles Orange, which is not mm. uncaring, even though he is about to kill yeah, him. I, yeah, he, he realises he's got to shoot him because that's what you do. Yeah. Even at the cost of his own life. Yeah. But he's still going to do it because not to do that would betray the relationship. Yes. I think. And in exactly the same way, Orange, who could have just not said anything and lived, feels like he has to tell White at the end he was a cop because yeah. their relationship becomes more than, more than it was. And I, for me, aside of everything. I, I don't else, like any of these people, but they, no. they, they show it beautifully. Yeah. I mean, they are not likable characters, any of them, you know, including Orange. But I, one of the things I like, in fact, I prefer about Reservoir Dogs to Pulp Fiction, which we'll come on to, is that these characters, although, yes, similar to Scorsese, clearly, and Myers in some way, his, his muses in Goodfellas, um, here Tarantino is clearly feels these characters are, are cool, and they are, you know, in the night, they, they were genuinely cool back then. Um, uh, I don't know if that has aged quite so well, probably because it really has been imitated so much, that kind of, um, those kind of characters. But, um, uh, they, uh, the, the relationship between Orange and White is just, it's so, yeah, the, the emotions there are so beautifully done that it, it really moves me. Um, mm. and, and it's a, it's a way that wins me over in a way that there's just nothing, nothing comparable to me with Point Blank. Um, <laughs> so yeah, and I, but also, I, I, did, I, I love Steve Buscemi. I, I mean, he could act it. I know he's always Steve Buscemi, but his Mr. Pink is, is one of the highlights of the film to me. I t yeah, didn't, didn't really engage me, but again, it's, it's done well. I certainly grab that. Yeah, so. it's professional. Yeah, I, well, I could wax it. I, I, the film just works for me. Um, I just want to know what's happening. Now, this film, and again, it's interesting to see what we 25, 27 years later. Yeah. This film was thought of as incredibly violent. Um, mm. watching it now, I don't know quite what that means. It really doesn't seem so. Well, the, th the thing that struck me is that yes, the violence is clearly intended to shock. Yeah. It, but it works only insofar as it does shock and it doesn't shock us. Uh, yes, yeah. Both of whom have probably seen quite a lot bloodier things in real life. <laughs> That's <laughs> but, but the thing is, I I have seen you know balletic, beautiful violence. Yes. In, for example, your Hong Kong action films, where it's it's just considered a thing you have to do. Yes. And, and that can be both shocking and beautiful. And if it doesn't work for you as a shocking thing, it can still work for you as a beautiful thing. And that doesn't happen here for me. 
No, I mean, there are moments there. You know, I, I remember everyone, when I first watched it, thought how cool, you know, no one had ever seen, like, when Mr. White stands and shoots the police car with a pistol in both hands and just stands there, cool as anything. Everyone thought how amazing and cool that was. Um, <laughs> everyone was just absolutely horrified by um, Marvin, the cop's torture scene. I, um, I it doesn't feel... Um, does it feel gratuitous? It, it was often said this is just a gratuitous scene, and I, I don't feel so. To me, it ratchets up the tension. You are horrified to see the character that Mr. Blonde is, um, as is everyone else. You know, Mr. Orange can't bear it anymore and shoots him, even well, though. But that's the thing. Or, Orange is a professional undercover cop, and yes. he has to have that reason to break his. Kayfabe. Yes. It doesn't feel like the film is admiring of Mr. Blonde. Um, some of the other does, does it dwell on it a bit too much? Yeah, perhaps for my taste, but yeah. It did. I suppose it committed the sin of making it look a bit cool. Again, the way he's kind of dancing around to all these cool 70s songs and just sliding in and sliding and sort of, uh, yeah, I, I can see why it was, but to me, it's not, it's not divorced from the morality of it, that there is horror there and what he's doing, mm. the contrast mm. of how unmoved he is. I don't think it's saying uh, you want to be this guy, look how great he is. No, and, and um, you know, even the even the other characters are like, well, he's a psychopath. <laughs> um, you know, there's some nice lines in there, did you kill any, <laughs> did you kill any, or just some cops, no real people, which gives you insights into the kind of people they are. Mm. But I... Um, well, let's talk about that. Then we've said again. This is surprisingly straight narrative, unlike Tarantino's perhaps later films. Though I think perhaps it's dwelled on. I was I was listening to um, a podcast about Tarantino, and and again he he wasn't so big on Point Blank either. I was a little surprised to hear he he <laughs> has been influenced by the opening of it, but then he felt it never quite lived up to that opening sequence. In that sense, I guess you could say, yeah, it, it, it's it, it encourages you to. To expect a weirder film than you actually get. Yes, yeah, it's a weird film, but it doesn't quite. It becomes a straight revenge narrative after that. Um, and I suppose you could say a similar thing about Reservoir Dogs. But to me, I am invested. The stakes are there right at the beginning. I know that I don't particularly like the characters, but still, you can see that it's 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 a tragedy, and you can mm. see the end coming. And you want them to avoid it. Um, I did at times feel I'd have liked to watch the film about Holdaway, the the mental detective, because he was really interesting. Yeah, but... anyway, that is a, that's a really nice scene. Um, yeah, he is. Um, uh, he, he's talked about... Uh, well, um, the, the other thing, I suppose, Tarantino's... I, I always think, and I've said it a few times on the podcast before, I think Tarantino's phenomenally good at tension rather than violence. I'm surprised it's not... It's not quite so evident in Reservoir Dogs as I remembered it, actually. I, in some, in later films, he has got phenomenally good at ratcheting up the tension to breaking point before it all, uh, before it all blasts out. He, uh, in a way, it feels less artificial. It's, but it, it does get to, we have the final, um, iconic, uh, three-way, uh, shootout at the end. Yeah, that, Everybody talked about that as this great, hugely tense scene, and it yeah. didn't really strike me that way, because surely the point of a Mexican standoff is that you have three sides, and here you only have two sides. Uh, well, th- this is a big thing about what who killed Nice Guy Eddie. What I've, I've watched it very carefully this time. It's quite clear White shoots Joe and then turns and shoots Nice Guy Eddie. But apparently what happened is um, Sean... Is it Sean Penn? No. Um, 
Uh, it's not Sean Penn, it's his brother. Um, but uh, the squib goes off um, too early, and so he falls mm-hmm. to the floor while White is still turning to shoot him. Right. And now Tarantino said he did that to maintain an air of mystery. I suspect he just either didn't have the budget to shoot it again, or thought it looked good that enough. Clear, anyway. you, and th- this is where I, I nominate Harvey Keitel for an utter acting professionalism award. Uh, that, that bit where the door blows open yes. wh- while they're in mid-conversation, he just walks over and slams it again. Yeah. <laughs> this, yeah, this was not planned, but they didn't have the budget to reshoot that scene. They didn't have the time or the rest of it, so he just fixes it. Yeah, he does. And he, Harvey Keitel is, I, I think, phenomenal in this, because he is very different in lots of other films. He's not an actor I've seen a lot of, but I certainly like what I see here. And again, it's, I don't know if it was Tim Roth's first film, but he's... Quite early for him, at least. I've, I've seen him in a, a TV series, but not much else. I, I mean, uh, for me, the acting is all great. Again, Steve Buscemi, uh, 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 your mileage obviously varies, but I, it's just, I love his... I, I think the first time I saw him or was aware of seeing him may have been in Armageddon. Yes. In which he is basically there to be annoying. So, <laughs> In fact, Steve Buscemi... Playing is a, a very similar role. He seems, he seems to be the recipient of revenge casting by directors, William, because in this film, he complains about waiters and tipping, of course, in Tarantino's film, he has a very brief cameo as a waiter who doesn't get mm-hmm. tipped. Um, and similarly, in um, he's in Fargo, um, in which is a character who never shuts up. Um, and in The Big Lebowski, he plays a character who is constantly being told to shut the fuck up. Like every time he opens his mouth, he never finishes a line, um, which I like. Sorry, slight, yeah. slight geeky <laughs> trivia. Um, I, I mean, this exploded onto the scene. Just, did it feel very different to you? It, it's hard because this is a film that's been so imitated I now. think I would have been more surprised by it at the time yes. uh, than I am now. I, I, I hadn't particularly read about it. I, I read about it a bit after I'd seen it. Um, yeah, I mean, the, it's, the violence is certainly a lot more graphic than was common at the time. Yes, I think that's um, it, and it probably paved the way for us getting quite used to violence nowadays. I mean, if you if you compare, you know, action films, something something like Die Hard or Commando or Predator, you know, there's blood, but there's not a lot of blood, and it's not spraying around. Yeah, the violence is not so abrupt and life changing and ending. And and generally, in, in Die Hard is a bit of an exception to this, but in, in your classic, you know, big muscly guy action films, people are up and fighting, or they're dead. Yes. Or the, the hero has a slight scrape on his arm, I, ra- rather than something like this where people are hurt. Yes. I mean, the violence in Tarantino films, it, it either ups the stakes uh, or, or really changes the tension. Um, and again, it, it's interesting seeing, as you say, that Mexican standoff that is thought of as this great tense scene. It doesn't actually seem that tense watching it now. That may be because I'm familiar with the film, but I think Tarantino's got better at ratcheting up the tension before it all explodes. Um, that said, I, I mean, this works very well for me, so I'm, mm. I'm not going to complain. The, the thing that did strike me, and is possibly unfair of me, was uh, when, when Scorsese wanted to score a film from his record collection, he set it in the years that those songs were legitimately new things on the radio. Yes. Whereas Tarantino invents an oldies station. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, that's a fair point. But again, I, for me, it works... Uh, but it's really just, I mean, that, that is a bit of a, um, here are some of Tarantino's favourite songs, um, and you will listen to them now. Um, it does feel a bit intrusive. Um, yeah, little what, Green Bag was actually originally meant to be a Little Green Back, as in 
you don't get anywhere if you don't have any money. Yes. But it got misheard, and then it got mistitled, and then they said, well, what the hell, the stoners are buying it, let's keep calling it that. When you listen to it, it does actually clearly say Little Green Bag, I think. Um, I I, I lost my train of thought earlier, but I was saying, um, the reason I prefer it to Pulp Fiction, in a way, is that everyone in Reservoir Dogs gets what they deserve, really. You know, they're well, not nice characters. They all get killed, more Except or less. maybe Pink. Maybe Pink. Some people have but, done... But some... you wouldn't put money on it, or I wouldn't, anyway. It doesn't sound great for Pink. It, he certainly doesn't get away scot-free, even if he's still alive. Um, uh, I mean, this is the LAPD we're talking about. <laughs> exactly. But at least he's not black, so he's... Pro- uh, anyway, let's <laughs> not... Um, whereas in Pulp Fiction, these characters are kind of uh, mythologised. Yeah, not all the black faces cool. here. Which, uh, to be fair, in most criminal conspiracies, particularly this sort of era, they did tend to be fairly monoracial. They do, but they talk about black culture, and they basically they in, lift in a this lot. Weird alien thing that we do not understand, but we're happy to steal from. Yeah, exactly. But they basically <laughs> pinch everything they can from it um, and get away with it and pretend they haven't. Um, but I don't think I don't think you're meant to think that that's cool. Well, maybe, yeah. you, maybe you are. I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm I, a little undecided. But it's, I, don't, I didn't think so. I, I, it, it is that tension between here are these guys doing because they don't, they don't care for anybody else's opinion. They just do what they want to do, yeah. which is obviously a cool thing. Versus, but what they want to do isn't very interesting or nice or successful. Or <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it's surprisingly similar to Goodfellas in that respect. And I, for me, Goodfellas. I don't know how much it feels like much more of an influence on this film than um, than Point Blank did. Um, but also we haven't... I mean, there are a number of other films um, Tarantino cited as references, like The Killing, um, which is um, Kubrick's heist film, which I haven't actually seen. I haven't seen it. No, we might have to revisit that one at the moment. But I agree with you. It, it, there don't seem to be a lot of similarities between them. They're both about crime and violent crime, Um Ah, uh, there's slightly fractured narratives in both of them, but not not terribly. Probably mm. less so in Reservoir Dogs. Um, the flash the flashbacks felt to me like legitimate flashbacks to make the particular point at the particular time, rather than we're going to mess around with the flow of time to make it more interesting. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. It wasn't. Yes. It was right. This is what you need to know before this happens. Uh, but done. In I a, mean, the, the the main thing for me was um, what is Blonde's background. Um, yes. Yeah, we, we've seen that scene where he is clearly utterly loyal to the family and they are loyal to him. Yeah. And therefore, the claim of betrayal isn't going to work. Yes, exactly, yeah. Even though they all think he's a psychopath. It's a nice acting film. He is a psychopath, but... But, but he's also a loyal psychopath. Mm-hmm. And Michael Manson, who we last saw in Elm Thelma and Louise, and mm. a different but similar character here, but he's certainly got a, <laughs> a terrifying quality to him here as Blonde. Um... It's, I mean, he's not one of the, the biggest screen villains in the world, but he's, he's, he is, uh, I, well, it's hard to talk about Reservoir Dogs now without saying iconic, because it's been so imitated. Um, mm, well, that, that, that certainly ticks one of our masterpiece boxes. Well, it does, doesn't it? I mean, is there much more you want to say about Reservoir Dogs? I, yeah, I, I think... How, how would for, you... For, for a successful, well-regarded, well-imitated film, there's surprisingly little, little ambiguity about it. Yes. Well, there are, I mean, the things that people get obsessed with about Reservoir Dogs are things like that. Did 
Does Orange actually get shot at the end? Actually, I don't think that is that unambiguous. You hear a loud shot, and then you hear a load of shots when Harvey Keitel disappears out of um, Who shot Nice Guy Eddie? Again, I don't think that's particularly unusual. Does Mr. Pink get away? Um, again, these are questions... I suppose you could analyse the sound, but... Someone has, and it sounds like he did get away, probably. Well, no, he doesn't get away, but he probably gets arrested rather than shot. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I agree with you. It's interesting that people are obsessed over those details. Um, I think because they cared about the characters. But what we've moved away from in the whole discussion is what, where we started with Reservoir Dogs. What absolutely, utterly worked for me in this film and why, why I like it more than Pulp Fiction, I think, is because it has Orange and White's relationship. And that, mm. I just, I think that's so beautifully sold by both of them that their relationship becomes something more more than what it was and that that howl of agony at the end by Harvey Keitel it's not even a howl I can't describe it just the noise that he makes it just <laughs> it's beautiful um, at selling it um, it's a good film and I like it um, yeah well I don't love it but I can I can see the virtues of it even if they're not especially things that I love okay good well you didn't yeah I suppose so we're on slightly opposite sides of the well not not much but um I wonder what... I think we probably will be watching Pulp Fiction at some point. I wonder what you'll make of that. Um, I... Mm, my instinct is you might like it less than this, but we'll, well see. We shall see. see. We shall see. Um, were they masterpieces? Um, point blank. blank? I don't think so. No. It's, not, got, not it's got some interesting things about it, but... No. Uh, for me... Well, I don't like it personally. I don't know how influential it was. It feels to me very similar to other films of it, that it, era. It's very much a film of that type of that time, yeah. yeah. As I say, Thomas Crown and, and so on. Whereas I, I do think Reservoir Dogs was so wildly different to anything around at the time and has been so hugely imitated. It's hard to think... By Tarantino himself, among others. I mean, that style Tarantino. was a, th- a thing that... Obviously, it wasn't exclusively his, but but you knew after this point what, r- at least roughly, what a Tarantino film was going to be like. Well, it was amazing how quickly it he became. You know, it took Spielberg probably more films than Tarantino to mm. become a director where everyone knew what a Spielberg film was. Um, but Tarantino, almost by this, but certainly by Pulp Fiction, he yeah. was he mm. was. The star, almost more than any of the stars in it, possibly excepting Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, I mean, I think we've always been at least slightly interested in films and we were aware of directors and things, but he was he was a, a name director to people who didn't care about directors. Yeah, exactly. everyone knows what Tarantino... Uh, everyone... Spike Lee, similarly, I think, was yes. a, a big, you know, the, it, all the posters always said a Spike Lee joint. A Spike, yes, That's exactly. a memorable thing. And I think some, to some extent it was conscious of Tarantino to do that, but I think the reason it worked is it's, it is so different and so distinctive to everything else that was out there at the time, and now that's kind of all merged together to many <laughs> films that are, are similar, or, you know, Tarantino-esque is a word in the same as Spielberg-esque is, and everyone knows what you mean by it, mm. like Hitchcock-esque. I don't. It's, would Spike Lee esque be? Yeah, I, I think that would probably be it too. But I think there, that there's would be at least a, a, a locus of style and narrative subject and so on that that you're likely to be circling around. Yes, yeah. Um, so I I do think it's a masterpiece. It is also a film that I greatly enjoy. Um, yeah, I do. I I, I would. I would watch that again. I don't know if it's quite in my favourite films ever. No, it isn't. But it's it's very good for me. <laughs> um, well, there we go. Uh, a, a crime 
double bill in person as well. Um, we've de- we've done our first ninety two, haven't we? And so we don't need to go through the. Well, I, I, I think it's time, time for time we looked at what Spielberg esque really means. <laughs> um, we're about to have another close encounter. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,